0: A brief update, it's May the 12th, 2024, I've released just two episodes of this year, my father-in-law passed away in January, he bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years, rest in peace John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast.
1: Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams, you're talking great individual players.
0: Takes it off and there's number 23, and of course Johnny goes nuts. That's where I'm getting Bumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody, I'm not a people person. Strand, you make the pass? Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time and I was able to get off the ground and throw one down.
1: I was saving that as a surprise for you.
0: And
1: now... Introducing your host for In All
0: Earnest, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 17. Thanks for joining me. Go to inallearnest.com for show notes and plenty more features. The social hub for the podcast is Facebook.com/slash inallearnest. If you haven't already, please like the page and join the growing community of fans. Add the podcast to your RSS feed or iTunes so you never miss another show. It's also available on Stitcher, BlackBerry, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, and numerous other podcatchers. I love hearing from listeners. On either site, you can send voicemail, comments, or questions. With your permission, I'd love to include your feedback on future episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at InAllAnus.
2: My guest today was the second overall pick in the 1982 NBA Drafts. He was the 1983 Rookie of the Year. He's a two-time All-Star and an 18-year veteran of the NBA. Terry Cummings, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Adam.
2: I appreciate it. Now, from what I've read about your teenage years, Terry, you hadn't been playing organized basketball for all that long prior to attending college at DePaul University in Chicago. Can you please talk about your early years playing sports and how did the opportunity to play with DePaul come about?
1: Well, I actually played more... um My first sport was hockey and grew out of hockey into uh, playing baseball and basketball. And um, I've only played uh, about two years of organized basketball in high school. Mm -hmm. And um, wound up being recruited. I actually recruited myself to DePaul because they wouldn't recruit me um, because my coach wouldn't let them get near me. So I went to DePaul and recruited myself to DePaul and wound up signing a letter of intent. And um, the rest kind of just rolls on from there.
2: Now, after your junior season at DePaul, including appearances in the NCAA tournament each season, you were named a first-team All-American and turned pro. Before we get to your NBA career, can you please talk a little about those college days where you were also teammates with a fellow Chicago legend and future All-Star, Mark Aguirre?
1: i um, great my experiences with Mark and... Uh Kip Dillard, Clyde Bradshaw, some of the guys at the uh, school, Dennis McGuire, Sam, Manella. Uh, but I think one of my greatest uh, uh, teachers life-wise and even at that time of college was Ray Meyer, who was the then head coach. He just was a man that allowed me to be a man and treat me like a young um, young boy or a young I mean, he let me be a man, you know, and that made me, uh, made it where it was very easy for me to be the leader of that team, even as a sophomore, um, with so many juniors and seniors on it. But uh, my uh, college was just the best, always has been. I mean, that was the last time I ever knew lack of responsibility. I actually had um, TJ, uh, I got married to his mother in the beginning of my sophomore year at DePaul and at the beginning of my junior year he was born.
2: Right, so it was all happening at that stage no doubt. Now, you were picked second overall in the 1982 NBA draft. The number one pick was James Worthy and Dominic Wilkins went number three. The three of you aside, there was four other All-Stars from the same draft. There was Mark Eaton, Fat Lever and your future teammates Ricky Pierce and Sleepy Floyd. What are your memories of that NBA draft I, Terry?
1: Well, at the time it was thought to have been the best draft in the NBA, uh of the NBA that ever had with so many players coming out that were um that actually lived up to the billing the best of who they were. It was a very unique experience. Um, I was an inner city kids drafted stuff as a major event in America and in the NBA. And um uh, I some recently of the of the draft and if I had been drafted today, I would not have dressed the way I did then. <laughs> you know. So, but it was, I was a much younger Terry Cummings, and the experience was there. There was no one in my family to draw from, uh, to what to expect, how to dress, how to do anything. But I was raised properly by my parents to at least carry myself right in regards to, um, you know, being a man about everything. So, was a tremendous experience i think draft itself is is a is a great experience any you have been back I mean that you were being drafted by a team that was going to pay you really well for your services and that you would be exposed in probably a very good market as the man on that team
2: definitely now your rookie season was one for the ages you averaged twenty three point seven points ten point six rebounds two-and-a-half assists and almost two steals and one block per game. So clearly that set you up for Rookie of the Year honours. You played alongside Tom Chambers and also Bill Walton, <coughs> and Bill Walton was also on your San Diego Clippers team. Can you please just right. talk about those two years with the Clippers, Terry?
1: Well, it was it was different, you know, because for, for the first time in my life I was away from Chicago and away from home, and so was my then wife, Vonnie. Um as about as far as you can go in america uh from Chicago was going off that far west, and it was a different culture um We lived in La Jolla, which is in San Diego, but it's up in the mountains and and you know there are no mountains in Chicago, so it was in <laughs> plenty of water, sure in San Diego, but it was a great great cultural event overall for all of us. I think the greatest uh thing about being in San Diego was, you know, the Bill Waltons. My head coach was Paul Silas, who himself was a great player, you know, and um just a tremendous man and a coach that um taught me a lot about the game and and you know, learned a lot from Bill Walton and the with time chambers we were walk every night, you know, 'cause at the at the, the power forward and the small forward and the center spot whenever Bill played, it made it very hard for other teams, but we lost so many games playing with the Clippers. You know, and, uh, with DePaul, I lost six games in three years, and I lost six games in the first week I played with the Clippers, and I was I was depressed for a moment. But I um, had to learn that NBA lifestyles, you have to earn your way. And you know, after playing two years with uh, the Clippers, at the end of that second year, I actually went into the uh, owner's office, Donald Sterling, and asked him to trade me. I told him that I'd had a dream. And he said he wouldn't trade me. I said, Yeah, you'll trade me. I said, And I, I, I want to be traded to the Milwaukee Bucks because I dreamed about it and I knew that that was the team, you know, that I would play for. So mm-hmm. the same man that said he wouldn't trade me wound up trading me the night before training camp. That's how I got to Milwaukee.
2: Just before we get to your time with the Bucks, that first season playing for the. San Diego Clippers, how was the adjustment from playing at the college level to then going up against some of the greatest players in the world?
1: Uh, the the playing part was not the major part. The major part is in the college season, uh, you play 30, 35 games. In the NBA season, you have three or four college seasons in one year. Sure. And then there's the traveling. Those were the major culprits for me. Um, I had to learn to overcome that and i had to learn to pace myself because i played at one tempo all the time always straightforward head hard and uh... Um, the nba taught me to slow it down and and um and i was diagnosed at the end of the rookie year with arrhythmia because um, i think i basically had just torn my body down because i was playing at such a high rate where if i would continued to have done it i probably would have killed myself mm.
2: So it was obviously very full on and quite an adjustment for you. Now you played five seasons with Milwaukee. You went from winning 30 games in 1984 to heading east and winning 59 games with the Bucks, and also you took out the 1985 Central Division title. Now I'm sensing you're you were in your element in Milwaukee, given the strong history of winning that you had back at DePaul.
1: Yeah, I was told as soon as I got there. I mean, uh, um, I was given direction that I needed and. Uh, coach Don Nelson told me right away I just need you to score and rebound mm. and and you know defense was not as much a priority and as I look back at the tapes I could see it I thought I played better defense than I really did when I was in Milwaukee but I realized that you know I a lot of the defense suffered at times because I had to score and I had to rebound yeah and we had other people you know on the team that Their job was defending, you know, the the players, the offensive players that needed to be defended. And and I got to play the small forward, the big forward, and the center. Those were my my best, some of my most memorable times I had um, as an NBA player I had in Milwaukee. The guys I played with were the best guys. I mean, they were very professional. They were all family men. Most of us were all married with children. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all... We shared a lot of things together.
2: That's excellent to hear. And obviously that helps develop even stronger bonds when you're playing together on court, I'd imagine. Right. Yeah. Now, your first season in Milwaukee was Michael Jordan's rookie year in Chicago. You played against MJ in just his second regular season game, which is synonymous with that famous alley dunk. You also met in the 1985 NBA playoffs against the Chicago Bulls. Can you just talk a little about playing against a rookie, Michael Jordan, and how you saw his game evolve over the many years that you were opponents?
1: Well, I don't even know that you can describe it, but one mm. of the things that all of us would talk about when we would watch tape of him is if you weren't careful, you get so caught up watching Mike do what he does that you'll forget what your role or responsibility was uh, to stop him on defense. Because no one player could stick him. The team had to defend Michael Jordan. Hmm. And uh, he is probably the most elusive offensive player that has ever played the game. I mean, he was quick. He had a very quick first step. He could jump. And he just had a knack for getting the ball in the hole. I mean, he just, you know, his game grew. He grew. And when he grew, you know, the players around him grew and got better. I often told that look, you just got to be careful when you're playing against Michael or MJ um, because um, he is so good at what he does. You might just be one of them people watching him when he doesn't and wind up on his highlight film, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you want to focus and, and defend the space and area you're supposed to. He and I were uh, pretty decent friends because so, we used to play in the uh, – in Chicago in the off-seasons and we played on the same Pro-Am
2: team for about five to eight years okay excellent I I wasn't aware of that I did see some very rare footage of Jordan on a fast break dunk he did in one of the summer leagues and one of the recent ESPN I think it was one of those 30 for 30 documentaries and Uh I always wondered about those off-season leagues do you mind just talking a little bit more about some of the other players that you also played alongside and, and how competitive those games were during the offseason?
1: Oh, well, they were. They were really, I mean, Spud Webb, I played in one of his. I mean, um, I started playing against pros when I was 16, 17 years old because they would all come to Chicago and play in our pro-am like the uh Rutgers in, in New York. Sure. But I always thought ours was far better, you know, but that's just my own prejudice. Mm-hmm. But um, by the time I got to the league and, you know, the Chicago program Summer League used to be held at Chicago State University and then it went to Malcolm X, but you couldn't find a seat. People came from all over the world to play there and they came from all over the world to see those Summer League games. And uh, it was because it was just, I mean, stuff that you wouldn't normally get a chance to do in an NBA game or season. The summer league was wide open. You didn't have no coach blaring in your ear. You didn't have to worry about the other players because you are the man. You know, so the thing is, is whatever you do, the fans want to see it. You know, just come with it. And it was just the best way to describe uh, the summer league and the pro-am back then was that that was the rawest form of professional basketball. Uh, untapped that you could get anywhere in the world at one time. I mean then all the guys would do things that they wouldn't necessarily do because the NBA is a more controlled environment. Hmm. The players were everybody from Dr. J, Mickey Johnson, uh Ricky, what was Ricky's last name? Uh played at Michigan. He was from Chicago. But we, we had um everybody, you know, everybody, Gus Wins I believe, came and played from time to time. We got I mean, I brought David Robinson down there once, I think. Uh, I'm not sure. But then I used to put on games during the summer, too, uh, to raise money for inner-city youth. And so I would bring in everybody for those. Michael Jordan played in those games. Uh, Tom Chambers would come. Um, Tim uh, Hardaway. I mean, look, pretty much everybody came to play. that. That was the fun part. Of being in the NBA when the season was over and everybody got together and and we just balled. We just got out there and we just had fun and the fans loved it. It was like having an all star game with all the players that didn't make the all star team and the ones that did.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it was a very exciting time. And how was the interaction with the fans given that you, as you said, you were doing some fundraising type activities and that's something that I, I believe you've done really all throughout your career and well beyond, and we'll get to that a bit later on, but how was the interaction with the fans at that time as well? Well,
1: just, you know, it's about as close as most of them will ever get to the guys, and, you know, when you play and do those pro tournaments, tournaments, um, I back then, even in, on the NBA level, the arenas were not quite as huge as they are now. Right. So, you know, the players and the fans had a lot more camaraderie, but, As the end of the 80s came and you come into the 90s, these arenas became, you know, monsters, mega monsters, and and with all of the trimmings. And so the fans would push further and further away from the players. And and in most cases, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but something was lost in the process. Mm. You know, pretty much every time a new arena came up and the fans would push further back, you know, players and the fans kind of lost touch with each other.
2: Yeah, I can see how that would happen. Now, going back to your NBA seasons, you were pretty much a prototype for athletic strong forwards during the 1980s. You were already an established scorer and a rebounding force a few years ahead of players like Charles Oakley and Charles Barkley. Can you please discuss who you think were the toughest players that you battled against at the height of your NBA career? Well,
1: Barkley, because he was a um, a guy listed at about six, 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 seven, but probably was more like six, four. Had a very uh, low center of gravity. Was really quick and could jump out the building. Had nice strength. Kevin, um, what was Kevin's name, to um, play for Boston.
2: Kevin um, McHale.
1: Kevin McHale, because he was long. You know, when we would play, uh, when I played for Milwaukee, and um, uh, we would play against Boston. Robert Parrish would stick me, or let me see, the first few years before Kevin came, Bird had to stick me, and Bird couldn't stick me, because if he scored 30 or 40 points, I scored 30 or 40 against him. Hmm. I think at the end of my second or third year, Kevin McHale came to to, uh, Boston. By that time, I was in uh, Milwaukee, and when he got there... Uh, it was a different rivalry because I would beat Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale would be sitting back there waiting on me. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you know, I always thought that my toughest assignment as an offensive player uh, to get my offense going against was Kevin because he was he was so long, he played me pretty well. Yeah, There were so many great guys. There some guys whose names people don't even know. You know, a guy named Mike Williams was really tough. He was probably every bit as strong as I was and had had that mean streak just like I did. And, you know, there's certain guys when you play against them power forward to power forward, you don't show signs of weakness or or punking out on a seven match, but at the same time, you learn to respect what that player brings to the table because they're going to have to respect you too.
2: Yeah, definitely. And obviously you develop some great rivalries with these players over quite a number of seasons. You also have the distinction of being a two-time NBA All-Star can you just talk about that honor and what are your memories from the games that you did play in, Terry?
1: I just thought it was the greatest thing in the world, to be honest. I mean, the first one, you know, you playing against, you know, you're playing on the same team, on the same side with Larry Bird, Robert Parris, Dr. J, and, you know, Michael Jordan and all these cats, you know, man. Mm-hmm. It's like in, in heaven, and then, you know, First, both All Star games I played in were played in domes. I played in the two largest crowd wise games I think the NBA has had. One was in the Indianapolis Dome and the other was in the Houston Astronaut. So they were really, for me, I enjoyed both of them. Yeah. You know, I thought I would have made more All Star teams, but there's so mm-hmm. many politics in our business of basketball that you just got to have the credibility of knowing how good you are at what you do and let that be enough
2: for you. Yeah, well, looking over your numbers, when I was researching for this chat, I I knew you had some really solid numbers over your career, but the first 10 seasons in, in the league, you just had some incredible stats. You're looking at about 21 points a game, almost nine rebounds, two and a half assists, and over one steal per game. So those first 10 seasons before you injured yourself, and I'll get to that injury a little bit later, they were just an incredible run of seasons, Terry. Uh,
1: you know, it's funny that you're doing what you You never think about, you know, those lines of, of points, rebounds, assists, steals, and minutes played. Because, you know, I'm, I'll be 52 this Friday coming up. And reflecting back on a lot of things, I think about you know, how fortunate, how blessed, you know, I have been... Mm -hmm. in my lifetime to be able to do what I love doing and get paid for, but more importantly, to make other people happy while I do it. You know, to me, that is a ministry because it's good news. You know, it gives people something to look forward to, you know, the local fans you play for and and the fans you travel to and play against. You know, I mean, coming, I live in Atlanta now, and it's interesting that I bump into people almost everywhere I go, and they say, man, I lost so much money betting against you when you would come here and play against Atlanta. You used to just kill us, <laughs> you know. But I, I, I never thought of it in terms of that. I, I thought that, you know, when we came to Atlanta, we were playing against Dominique and his team, his boys. So, you know, you got to be on your A game. When you go to New York, you're playing against Patrick Ewing and his boys. You're playing against, in Chicago, Michael Jordan and his boys. So you got to be on top of your game. You go to L.A. as Magic and his team, his boys. So, I mean, certain teams, you know, would draw my eye more than others because of playing in the small markets like San Diego and Milwaukee to this point. You know, I always wanted to play in LA or New York or in Chicago and Chicago, and I was not allowed that opportunity until I got to the other end of my career. So uh, when we would play against them, I would put up numbers. I let them know we may be San Diego, we may be Milwaukee, but you're going to have to pay to come this
2: way. You had a great unit of players that you did play with on those Milwaukee teams in particular, and certainly it's good to see that you certainly rose to the occasion playing against those bigger market teams, so I definitely say where you're coming from there. Now, speaking of tenure in Milwaukee, in 1987 in the playoffs, your Bucks eliminated the Philadelphia 76ers in a five-game series. Game five was at Milwaukee, and Dr. J led all scorers with 24 points. Now, what are your memories of playing against him and, and that was his final NBA game? So I guess you progressed to the next round but also at the same time eliminated Dr. J in his final playoff series.
1: I remember all that stuff like yesterday because he'd always been one of those people that I had tremendous respect for and always looked up to. Mm-hmm. So to have played in that in his final game was truly uh, um, uh, a great honor for me. And, you know, it, the interesting irony is, is that in that game, The last shot of the game was also taken by Dr. J. He had an opportunity to win that game with a shot I had seen him make so many times that he had a bank shot, I think. He had the last shot in that game. The ball hit the floor. We were on the floor wrestling and that's how the game ended. But, um, I have the greatest respect for him and that when people ask me what was one of some of my most memorable times in the NBA, I almost, almost always start off with that experience there in that year while playing in his final game.
2: Sure, that sounds like you've got some very good memories there. Do you recall the first time that you went up against Dr. J? Like, at what age were you when you first played against one another?
1: Um, the first time I ever played against him, I had to be about 20, 21 years old. Right. In fact, I have, I have a picture of it, and I remember it because... It was on one of those moves I was, uh, and I remember the picture was taken, and we were playing. He was playing for Philadelphia, and I was a rookie uh, with the Clippers, and Mm -hmm. they had come, I I believe, to San Diego, and I was coming down on the break on him, and I was coming down really hard, and then I slowed uh, up as if I was going to stop, and then all of a sudden I took off again, and that is the shot they took of of me going around him toward the basket.
2: Very nice.
1: Yeah, about 21 years old.
2: Right, so you're really nice and young there and uh, it would have been quite an experience going up against such a veteran and well-looked-upon player who's just had a a lasting impact on the game ever since.
1: You know, those guys, they they teach you a lot about, you know, uh, history, uh, respect, integrity, uh, not just for yourself and not just for the team, but for the game and for the fans. I think if you... You know, that older group of guys trained my group, and my group trained the next group. And the next group, you know, uh, which was the group that came in the 90s, they had the responsibility of training this group that that's pretty much playing right now, you know, including the LeBrons, you know. So, I mean, part of the heritage of the NBA is that you have the responsibility of passing on what you have learned to this next generation of
2: players. Beautifully said. Now, is there any players that you can think of just on the spot now that you do remember acting as a mentor for that you looked after in their early years coming into the NBA, given that you were more of a veteran at that time? Well,
1: I mean, pretty much every team I played on, um, that that was true. Uh, um, with the players, I always took them under my wings, the younger guys starting in the Clipper organization, the Milwaukee organization, and, uh, when I got to, uh, San Antonio, you know, I mentored David Robinson, Sean Elliott, Avery Johnson. I mean, all of those guys came under my care, yeah. you know. When I got to Milwaukee, it was different because they were already established veterans. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the guys that were drawn to me were the the Kenny Fields, the Jerry Reynolds that came in and we, we put in time
2: with them, you know. Yeah. Sounds like you're uh, obviously, uh, a father figure to some of these young guys they were coming into the league so young as well during that period of time and coming out of college early and things like that so it was good to have a, a comforting influence in some of the older players I'm guessing yeah now, yeah now you were traded to the San Antonio Spurs prior to that 1990 season and in the 1990 playoffs you lost an epic seven game second round series against the Trailblazers Your team had the Rookie of the Year, David Robertson, and a rookie, Sean Elliott, as you just mentioned a moment ago, as well as other young players like Willie Anderson and David Wingate, just to name a few. Do you mind just talking a little bit about that first series in 1990 against the Blazers and the six seasons that you spent with the Spurs, Terry?
1: Yeah, that might have been the most fun season I think we ever had. It was so exciting. It was like a college team and... Larry Brown infused it, you know, because he was—he's such a dreamer and an innovator, mm-hmm. and that he just poured it into all of us. I mean, he put a team together, and in one year, you know, that team could have ran the gamut on everybody. I mean, we were really just that good. We just got to the playoff; we got to that point, in Portland, and little mental mistakes lost that series. It, went, it was the best playoff basketball I think I had ever played to that point. And I had been in some great series, but that Portland series was probably the best series I'd ever been a part of. I want to say at least half of those games went into overtime.
2: That hmm. so was a very hard fought. Seventh and deciding game was an overtime affair as well, too, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, and and we actually lost it on just a couple youthful mental mistakes. But it mean that series you you're going against Clyde Draxler. Duckworth, Kevin Duckworth, you know, uh, Buck Williams, I believe was with them then. Um they, I mean, Jerome, Kersey, I mean, they had a tremendous team. I mean, and we, we were loaded. We were just a bunch of young guys. I mean, by that time I was in my, uh, shoot, by then I had to be two years, uh, my, about my eighth year.
2: Obviously, David Robinson made a, a huge impact at being the Rookie of the Year, like you were some years prior in that 1990 season. Could you tell almost immediately that he was going to have such an impact on the league going forwards and eventually become that Hall of Fame player?
1: Yes, yeah, and David was really like a prototype of what was going to come in uh, in the future because he didn't really physically fit the mold of a center. we had the height, he did, he never had the weight. He was always pretty strong, even though his body didn't appear to show it. Hmm. David had really good upper body strength. Um, but I just think he changed the prototype of of what um, was believed the center was to be because he wasn't necessarily a post-up player, but he could. But he was more of a perimeter player with quickness like a small forward. I mean, he could run like a deer, you know. I mean, he just – he was – a it was a tremendous asset, you know, from the beginning.
2: And also, he could run the floor with the ball. He could handle the ball quite well. There's some highlights I've seen where he just dribbles the length of the court on a semi-fast break and just dunks in traffic. So he could pretty much do it all. And as you said, he did change the mould for centers going forward.
1: Yeah, yeah, bigger was about as fast, quick as as most guards. I mean, he but, but from One end to the other, you know, he could outrun most people, most guards,
2: most small forwards. Incredible athleticism. Now, I don't want to dwell long on your knee injury, but do you mind just talking a little bit about the pickup basketball game in 1992 where you did some serious damage to your knee?
1: Yeah, I just always played. I played all year round, so I was always in pretty good shape. I just... um, I always told myself that if you're not gonna focus, don't come out and play outside. But I played outside all the time, and mm-hmm. this was just like more of a freak accident than anything else. Yeah. Young kid just tripped and fell into my leg, and I felt it pop. I just thought it might have been dislocated or something like that, because nothing happened right away. Um, I walked to my then mother-in-law's house, two or three blocks away, and by the time I got right to the Place where she lived, the knee blew up. It just swelled. It swelled up. I iced it. Went and got an X-ray, and that's when I found out my ACL had been torn. Hmm. And I was out that whole year. And it was great for me because, you know, those first nine or ten years, I had been the man, and I had to learn to humble myself and and uh, submit to the team so that I could be, you know, an asset to the team as a, as a role player coming off the bench. So what I did was I told myself. This injury by no means disqualifies me from playing in the NBA. What I'm going to have to learn to do is be the best role player on any team I play on. And uh, so my job shifted and changed. My mindset changed into our job as the second team is to make the first team better. So every team I played on after I tore my knee up, we would wear the first team out in practice, just about every practice. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's how we would prepare the first teams to play because we did things right on the second team and forced the first team to And normally late. Like, um, when I left San Antonio, I went back to Milwaukee. Those first teams made up of a bunch of young guys, you know, uh, Glenn Robinson and, and and people like that, um, you know, just really young cats who had only been in the league maybe two or three years. Mm-hmm. and didn't understand how the game was played. And uh, even when uh, I, I left Milwaukee, I went to uh, Seattle for a year. And um, they still had um, Gary down there. And uh, I played with Sean Kemp there and a bunch of other guys that were just, you know, not necessarily known, but they needed leadership. And, and what I learned once I left San Antonio, was that my leadership was in greater demand than my ability to play, even though at that stage most guys couldn't play, and I was still able to play. Yeah. So once my knee healed up, which took about a year and a half. I, I, I tore it up during the summer. I missed the first 76, 78 games of that season. I played in the last eight, and I played in the playoffs, and it still took the summer and part of the following year for my knee to fully heal.
2: Yeah, it's a fantastic outlook because some people may look at it as being too much of a challenge, having to go from being the man on the court, playing you know 40 minutes a game or whatever it might have been, to then having a role off the bench. But it looks like you you did take it in your stride and you used it to the best of your advantage.
1: Yeah, I always try to. I always thought that you know longevity comes to those who are able to improvise when the time comes. You have to be innovative if you're gonna. Came around like I played three decades of NBA. I played in the eighties, nineties, and and in two thousand. So I played in three different decades, mm. and and that to me is not, is not. I don't take it lightly. I believe it to be an honor. Yeah, you know, I believe it to be something that God truly inspired because He wanted me around to have a piece of part in that. But I also see it as being historical, in the sense that very few of us get an opportunity to do that touched that many lives in three different decades.
2: Yeah, it's something that very few people have had the opportunity to do, and you certainly made the most of it, and you're continuing to do so as well. You've almost answered this question already, but I'll I'll ask it anyhow. (laughs) After leaving the Spurs, you returned to the Bucks, as you said, then you play for the Sonics, the 76ers, the Knicks, and the Golden State Warriors. They were the final five seasons in the NBA. In just about 19 minutes a game, you average about eight points and five boards. Now, as you said, more importantly, perhaps, was that veteran leadership that you offered those younger players. How do you sort of sum up those last seasons in the NBA there, Terry?
1: I think they were the best I ever had because I think at some point you have to have an epiphany as to why you're doing what you're doing because mm-hmm. if you understand that, you can find out who you are, where you are. Mm. you know. And for me, um, I stopped chasing rings and trying to win championships although I went out every night to play to win one, I realized that maybe my greatest um, asset you know, at that stage of my life was to prepare men, young men, to become men in life, not just as professional athletes, but to pour in them. And now, at that point, once I left San Antonio, even though while I was in San Antonio, I became a father to many of those young men, and, and in some cases, you know, uh, a, a brother, a confidant, psychiatrist, Things that the coaches couldn't be in the GMs couldn't be. I did. You know when I got to Golden State, you know they involved me in pretty much everything that went on that aligned itself with the players because I became like a liaison between the players and the administration and the ownership hmm. because they trusted me that I had that interest at heart, and also the players trusted me that I had their interest at heart. Um, I was one of those people that I've always been very innovative. We have. Uh, uh, we used to have over the years this thing where, you know, everybody run up to you and want to do autographs and all this stuff. The team always had these balls and all this stuff. So I got to Golden State, and and, they, and the players didn't want to do it. The players would just disappear. And so they came to me and asked me what did I think um, they could do to help. And I said, it's simple. I said, just have about three or four of these signing days during the course of every basketball season. I said, uh, invite, let the guys know ahead of time that you're going to do it, feed them lunch while they work. And I said, I guarantee you they'll get in and out of here real quick and they'll, you won't hear nobody grumbling. And so we started doing that. Um, we would have three or four of them a year, and they would last for sometimes about an hour or two, but you're signing everything from basketballs to T-shirts to pictures to, to ribbons, I mean, some of everything, but... It
2: made everybody happy. A great insight there as to some of the things that you implemented or helped implement at some of those teams in the last few seasons. So, very interesting. Now, do you mind just talking a little bit about what you're up to these days? I know that you're heavily involved with your love for music, which obviously keeps you very active, but what do you get up to these days, Terry? Well, um,
1: I'm working on a new music project, but my primary interest lies in in my ministry, I pastor a church here. I've been pastoring for five years. It's a non-denominational church Mm -hmm. um, called HOPE, and the acronym for HOPE is Helping Other People Evolve. Um, And I look at it more as a ministry, because ministry implies that you're serving the people, not that the people are serving you. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a Greek word. The Greek word is egenito, and yeah, is E-G-E-N-E-T-O, and it means in the Greek to become something that you never were before. And that is, um, in, in the world system of the secular mindset, it might be considered <laughs> the uh, reinventing of yourself, but in truth, egenito is you actually becoming what you were meant to be. It's, it's almost like the uh, Greek word, metam- word for metamorphosis because you're literally always evolving into that individual that you, from the beginning, were meant to be. You know, we, we, where we are now, we shouldn't be here a year from now. We should be growing into something more. We should be challenging challenging ourselves to do greater things. And so for me, the ministry allows that because I get to see lives changed every day. Mm-hmm. You know, I get to see it from the, the, the spiritual, to the mental, the physical, the emotional... And it's one of the greatest things I think you know to be able to find yourself and 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 to understand what your here, your, your purpose is. And then the music is a balancer because you know I do all kinds of music, not just Christian music, but you know most of the music I've done that I have out there now is is more related to relationships and R and B and style. Mm-hmm. Musically, I've done some. A lot of work for black entertainment television. I used to write music for their uh, television shows. We've done stuff for Pizza Hut, Coca-Cola. We've written for many different artists, including Whitney Houston and Michael McDonald and, you know, the Winans. And, you know, on the gospel side, we've done a lot of music. But I personally now do more. You know, just I just like to call mine just good, good music.
2: Yeah. Now, do you do that mostly from within the Atlanta area or are you doing a lot of travel around the country as well these days?
1: Um, I don't travel as much because of the past thing, but um, I do accomplish most of what I want to do right here in Atlanta because Atlanta is what we call Hollywood in the South right now. Okay. It's the California South, so the music business flourishes here and television and film does too.
2: Great. Do you still have some involvement with basketball? And is coaching at the college or pro level something you'd ever seriously consider in the future?
1: No. From time to time, you know, friends and family members and um, former, um, you know, of my peers, they bring their sons, cousins, nephews, daughters, and they set them down with me. And and I spend time with them or work with them on the games. uh, But I don't do any coaching. And coaching would be like playing again, but it would be more frustrating because no one will ever play the game the way you played it. Mm. And you will find very few people to do that, and it can be a frustration. And I think you have to get over yourself first before you can start coaching, teaching, mentoring, you know. And for me, I um, retired in 2000, and it took me a good 10 years to watch another NBA game. <laughs> All right. But by the time, I had gotten it pretty much out of my system, and I was no longer watching it as a basketball player. I was watching it as as an enthusiast, someone who really enjoyed the game.
2: And what's your take on the NBA of 2013 and how, how the game's evolved since you finished in, in 2000? What do you think about the NBA these days?
1: I just think it's a, uh, it's a different game than the one I played. Uh, our game was a lot more physical. A lot fewer people got hurt. These cats get hurt more than we ever did, hmm. you know. And that, that's a softer form of defense. Um, you can't touch anybody. I don't know how well I would do in that because, um, you know, I enjoy the physicality part of the game uh, as well as the finesse part. You know, but I don't. I don't know. I think uh, maybe some of the biggest changes is that we have so many more players coming from Europe and all over the world to play in America and to add their version of what this pro style looks like a lot of these guys when i retired i had played against a lot of when they were much younger yeah and then they became stars in the nba once guys like me retired but i, I think the game itself is just a a very different game but if you want to enjoy it you can but i still think the best nba basketball is played at the end of the year when the playoff starts mm,
2: totally agree that. that's
1: when you you get to see what the league used to look like. When you get past that first round and that second round, you get into those semifinals or finals. The The way the playoffs are played, and that's the way the game used to be played. Yeah, They let you play. You just got to play.
2: Yeah. Do you have a, a pick at this stage of the season? I know there's another month or so before the playoffs even hit into full gear, but is there a particular team you can see coming out of the east or west that will maybe go ahead and take it all?
1: Yeah, well, without any prejudice, I still think you got to go through Miami. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody in the East could really beat them unless Miami just doesn't show up. I think that Oklahoma City has an opportunity because they have all the tools Oklahoma City does. Um, but I don't think anybody can really, outside of Oklahoma City, really beat Miami in a seven-game series. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as the West is concerned, um, I don't. I don't think it really matters who
2: comes out the west. I don't think they can beat Miami. Yeah, no, that's a very good point too. Well, Terry, it's been fantastic speaking with you today about your career and just life in general. You've given some really good insight there into what you're up to these days and and what you thought about your whole basketball career. I really appreciate the time that you've taken to reach out and chat with me today. So thanks again, and all the best for your birthday at the end of this week, and obviously going forward, I wish you every success.
0: I appreciate that. Adam. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please visit the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.